0: to see you all, glad to be here, um, I can't remember when I was here, was about six months ago, roughly, yeah, okay, so nice to be back, um, obviously we're in the season of Advent, and when Scotty texted me the other day, he said, can you do the Magnificat Mary's Song, I said, cool, because I've just come from the cathedral last year, and we did the Magnificat five times a week, so I know it really well. How many of you have been to a cathedral before, or to a choral even song service? Only a few of you, that's not enough, you should try harder, so go along to one. So the choral even service uh, dates back about a 1,000 years. And if you go to any cathedral in the world, you'll find that it's the normal activity in the evening from Monday through to Friday, and also on Sunday evenings. So the choral even song is just nothing more than prayer done in a sung format, and you let the prayer wash over you, and sometimes you sing as well. But at the centrepiece of the choral even song is something the choir do, and it's called the Magnificat. And it's the song that Mary prays, after she's been to see her uh, cousin Elizabeth when she's about to give birth to John the Baptist. My soul rejoices in the Lord. And it goes through and talks about how God has lifted up the lowly and made low those who are in uh, high places of status. So it's a significant song. Now what I want to do is remind you that everything we do as a church dates back to about the 6th century. Prior to that, we don't know a lot about what went on. We take some guesswork at it, but pretty much most of the liturgical stuff you go through, the format of the services we have today, date back to about the 6th century. So that's a long way back, all right? So all the ecclesiastical lingerie that people like me wear on a regular basis has a long history back to that period, but prior to that, it changes considerably. So in about um, 525 AD, a man by the name of Constantine, Emperor Constantine, became a Christian, sort of. And when he became a Christian, that changed the nature of Christianity itself. Because prior to Constantine, pretty much everybody was persecuted. There's a sense in which the church lived underground. And if you travel to Turkey today and go to a place like gorome you'll find what they call the catacombs. And they go down around about 300 feet And this is where Christians lived underground to hide away from the Romans who were chasing them at the time. And when you go into these catacombs, they go down and down and down, and they have vestibules, and then they have rooms often where families lived with stones that could be rolled across. And then you come across these enormous great big caverns that have been bored out from underground, and you see the old frescoes, which reminded you that this is the place that people came to worship. So here they are, hiding underground from the Roman Empire, worried, A, that they're going to be killed, not survived, and what God is doing. But in the midst of that, they have these enormous, ornate facilities where they gathered for worship, all in the 3rd century. Amazing to look back at our history and realise that prior to the time that Constantine got converted... Christians were persecuted, but their view of the world was different from the one that we have today, and we've had since the 6th century. Because prior to that, the church formed itself around its very basic understanding of the teaching of Jesus, that it was largely about the poor and the ordinary of life, who God elevated to a place of status, even though their actual lives didn't change much. Together as a community, they had a sense of equality because they knew who they were in Christ. When Constantine became a Christian, he then made Christianity the religion of the land. Now, that changed everything. It meant that Christians went from being underground to being on the ground. And not only that, that if you were a priest in the the Anglican church, if you were a priest in the church back then, or an elder of the church, or a teacher or a pastor, you often were given political status in society. So that changed the way that we read Scripture. It changed the way that we viewed society, and it changed the way that we viewed ourselves and the world. No longer was it a bottom-up view of theology and social experience. It now became a top-down view of the world. And inasmuch as all of us sit in the same room together, and we like the idea of that, the actual subconscious cultural mandate that we have is one of progression and doing well, rather than actually going the other way and looking after the world in which we find ourselves and the poor and the needy and elevating them because that's what the gospel called us to. So we, we institutionalize it as an academic way of being and trying to live that out for the entirety of our lives means that we have to have a different view of the world in order to sustain it, not only while you're kids and young people and into your early 30s, there comes a point where we sort of regenerate back into the idea of progression and looking after ourselves and security. And that all happens in the 6th century. Prior to that it was very different. So when we get to the season of Advent we're called to actually reflect a bit on what it means for us as followers of Christ to be Christians, not in the world but in and of ourselves and how is it that we connect with the God who has Redeemed us, who's changed us, who's transformed us, and what does that mean for us in terms of the way we project our own lives into the world in which God has placed us? Now, what are the four words that come with Advent season? There are four Sundays. Does anyone remember what they are? Hope, joy, peace, and love. Yeah, well done. So, hope, joy, peace, and love. Okay, there's also preparation that comes in there, and there's a few other words that get bandied around from year to year depending on what season you're in. This period of time is called the period of waiting. And it's principally a period of preparation for the coming of Christ. But it's not for the coming of Christ who happened to come 2,000 years ago. We now think to the coming of Christ in his entirety where the heavens and the earth are transformed and God redeems the entirety of the world. We look forward and we ask ourselves in the same way that Israel did in preparation for the coming of Christ, what are we preparing for? And we are thinking about who we are and how we experience God in the world. So the last couple of weeks, we've done peace and we've done preparation, what it means to prepare. And on this third Sunday, most churches tend to look at this theme of joy. And I want to take you back in history to start thinking about what joy might mean and how it works for us. When I was in the United States a few years ago, I got taken along to a a baseball game. I've never seen baseball in my life. It seems to be a smaller version of softball or something Anyway, they they really flip out. They have these huge stadiums and you go there with thousands of other people and you're sitting up in the bleachers and there's people wandering around with these things around their neck with a square box. Has anyone seen these? And they sell hot dogs. The night before I went to this baseball game, we got taken out by this host that we were with to this restaurant where the only person who gets the price list is the host and nobody else sees what the cost of anything is. That tells you something. This is an expensive restaurant, right? So the idea is that you shouldn't be horrified that you've chosen the most expensive thing because you didn't know. I got given the price list accidentally, and I kept it to myself, looking down at it and thinking, good grief, you could feed the universe for the price of these things. And while we were sitting there working out what we were going to be ordering, there were a couple sitting a couple of tables away from us having this absolute fight, And they were just going hammer and tongs at each other across the table. Not loudly, but enough to be aware that there wasn't harmony happening at that point in time. I noticed that the bloke who was doing the arguing with his wife or girlfriend was eating a particular form of meal. And it was called steak au poire or something. I don't know. It was a piece of cube steak about that big, about that big, and cost something like 70 US dollars. Hugely expensive, right? So while he's having this fight with his girlfriend, he's tucking into the steak, shoving it in his mouth, chewing, swallowing, and then complaining again. And every time he put a piece of steak in his mouth, I thought to myself, there goes 4 <laughs> And he just kept chaffing through this thing to the point where he slammed his knife and fought down, having finished the meal. I thought I'm, he vacuumed it in. We're completely unaware he'd even eaten the thing. The next day when we went away to this baseball game this guy came around with these, um, th- this table attached to his chest and he was dishing out hot dogs and we noticed a guy move into the bleacher just in front of us and he was an older guy and he looked like he lived a pretty tough life. And he went off and he'd come back with this hot dog. And as he had this hot dog, he had not only the hot dog, but he had a series of sauces in these little packets with it. And it was fascinating to watch him. He sat in the chair in front of us, just in front, and he opened the napkin and he laid it out like a tablecloth on his knees. And then he took the hot dog and pulled it out of the bag, put the bag on top, laid the hot dog on top of it, peeled it open with care, so you could see the frankfurter in the middle of this bread. And then he got the sauces, one by one, and he opened them up, flattened them out, tore the edge off it, and then he proceeded to do a work of art over the top of the hot dog, one by one, mustard, tomato sauce, more mustard, jalapenos, whatever it was. And then at the end of it, he picked it up, and he ran it under his nose, I swear, like this. Joy, and then he took the first bite. It was like watching a symphony in operation, munched into it, and as he munched into it, he savoured it as he put down, he chewed slowly as he went through the hot dog. These things cost two dollars. Now, the question is who enjoyed that meal most? The bloke who paid 70 bucks, or the guy who paid two dollars for his hot dog? A hot dog. Why? Why did he enjoy it? He took the time, yeah. What else? Yeah, he wasn't complaining with anybody. That's a good start. What else do you think he enjoyed his hot dog? He valued it. He valued it because for him it was meaningful. the person who spends all this money, and when you've got a lot of it, it's easy to devalue the things that you should value. And a lot of the joy that we have in life comes out of the value we place in the things that are gifts to us without realizing it. And when we fail to realize that everything that comes to us is a gift, our level of joy in the world diminishes because we forget, we fail to realize that we are creatures, we are not creators. We are manipulators of reality, but we do not create reality. We live in it, but it comes to us whether we want it or not. And how we hold on to it determines the level of joy that we have. It's a bit like the idea of gratitude. It's this idea that something has come to me that is unexpected, that is a gift. How many of you got a job? A few of you. Yeah. Some of you got a job. How many of you got an income of any kind? you have all got an income how do you view the income that you receive? It appears in your bank week by week or month by month. Some of you get more than others, but you all get something come to you. The question is, are we grateful? Do we live with gratitude when we see the bank account increase? Or do we go, thank God it turned up. I've got a lot of bills to pay. Because one is is a world of entitlement. The other one is a world of gratitude. One says, this is a gift to me, I did not create the context in which I am receiving this money, I am actually using what I have as a resource to manipulate what's already there so I can do well in it. If you're a lawyer, you didn't create the legal system, you benefit from the legal system. If you're an accountant, you didn't create the counting world, you benefit from the correct counting world. If you're a doctor, you did not create medicine, you benefit from the medicine in which you work. That attitude says that I am grateful for the opportunity to do and be and make a difference in the world. I did not create the context for it, but I have the ability to work and serve in it. I am filled with joy that I can use these things that have come as gifts. So this concept of joy pushes us in this direction. So can someone here tell me what joy is? What does it mean to experience joy? Anyone had a hot dog recently? No. McDonald's. No, but you didn't say about that. <laughs> a fulfilling experience. Okay. Peaceful experience. That's what? A peaceful experience? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just sheer delight. Sheer delight. Okay. It's, it's a, not bad. It's a fruit. Okay. So it's a fruit of the Spirit. So it comes from within, but it's gifted to us from without. Yep. And sharing it with people. Sharing it with people. Yep. Cool. Okay, so there's a difference between the two. Yeah. Alright, so if that's what joy is, what's happiness? Okay, so it's a response to something. What does happiness feel like? Euphoria. Euphoria, <laughs> yeah, okay. When someone's giving you a hug. When someone's giving you a hug, yep. Getting okay. married. Getting married, yep. Yeah. Okay, response. A response to something apparently Yeah. Alright, so psychiatrists actually measured happiness. And they good. said that it lasts for between 5 and 30 seconds. <laughs> and then, and you might think, well, that doesn't sound right. But actually what they say is that happiness is an, an, an emotional response that gives us a f- physiological kick. And we get an adrenaline release and it causes joy. And there's a few other bits and pieces that go with it as well. It happens very quickly. And then we live on the residue of it. But the actual experience is quite short-lived. So joy is one thing. Happiness is another thing. What's the difference between the two? Because we use the words interchangeably, but they're not quite the same. So what's the difference between the two? What causes happiness? It's from outside. What causes joy? It starts from within. So joy is a knowing. It comes from a deep sense of who we are by knowing who we are in Christ. We know who we are in God. And that changes the way we stand in the world and the way we face everything. It's not exactly the same as happiness. Happiness comes and goes. The biblical model tells us that joy is something that remains always. It's always there but it's not always based on circumstances. So what does it mean to have joy in pain or joy in suffering or joy in difficulty or joy in the ordinary, boring, mundane reality of life? that comes most of our way a lot of the time. So Romans 5.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the idea in Paul's mind throughout the epistles is that our sense of joy or peace, or any of those other words we use in Advent, comes out of a trust in God as a starting point. It also tells us that once we have those things, we then overflow with hope. And hope is not for the thing out there, it's hope in the present that what we're going through makes sense. And that's one of the great aspects of hope. It's not this airy-fairy thing that says it will all be okay tomorrow because you don't know that. The Apostle Paul knew that. The disciples in Jesus' time did not know that it was all going to work out for them, but they speak of this irresistible joy or rejoicing that was in them despite their circumstances. In Galatians 5.22, we all know this one, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things, there is no law. The point Paul makes is that it is a fruit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, then it is your entitlement. You may ask for it, and you can receive it in any setting and in any circumstance. That's the way it works. It comes from God and knowing who you are in God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a part of our knowing who God is with us. And when we pray and we ask again for God's filling of His Spirit, joy is a part of what we receive. And if you haven't got it, you can ask for it. So we find ourselves with Mary. And the reason we speak about joy in Mary is because the opening statement of her uh, prayer is, my soul rejoices. Joy or kara is the same word and it's used in this context. But part of this joy that she experiences is because there is a knowing in Mary that enables her to do this and we'll talk about it in just a second. How many of you went off and had a coffee recently? At a barista? Yeah, a few of you. It's New Zealand's hottest selling beverage I believe or something along those lines so most of us have been often had our double half-calf soy carbon neutral milk latte or whatever it is that you have when you go to the barista but when you're drinking your coffee do you sit there and think to yourself what went into making this cup of coffee have you ever thought about that hard work a lot of hard work went into that coffee So that barista that stood behind the machine, if they did a good job, probably trained somewhere to do it, right? That's generally the way it works. They order in particular beans that someone's worked out over the months that these are the best beans that we're going to use in this cafe. They've done that. They've ground them to a specific, um, uh, what do they call it? Not viscosity, a grind, coarseness, so that it all comes through at exactly the same rate, so the coffee is the same every time. Someone's done all that work. Then they had to order it from somewhere, who, someone who roasted those beans for you after they imported from somewhere around the world where some poor person generally is the person who grew it on a small plot of land and continues to grow it so that you can sit in your cafe drinking your latte or whatever as you drink. And that's not to even begin to mention the milk. So when you think about the story behind the coffee that you drink, you will drink it differently next time. Because someone in a group of people worked hard for your $4.50, what is it, that much these days? Or $5.10 for your coffee. It tells a story of where it came from. Now Mary has a story as well, because when you read about Mary, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. We've got a 16, 17-year-old girl, a young woman, who's minding her own business, is largely unknown, but lives in the line of David, King David. We know that much, because Jesus was born into that line. That's Mary's line. She's not married. She's got a fiancé called Joseph in the background. She has an angelic experience. And in that angelic experience, God says, or the angel says to her, you are blessed among women because God has chosen you to get pregnant out of wedlock and it's going to be a disaster. You're going to have to leave home fairly rapidly, go and live with your aunt, who is also pregnant, by the way. And while you're over there... Then you will become ready to deliver your child. We'll work on your fiancé who's not going to be happy about this. And at that point, the kings of Israel are going to come hunting you because they'll want to kill your child and every other child. So you will then be refugees. Cool. And as a response to that. She says, why am I so blessed? Is that, would that be your response? Blessed. Because there's a story behind Mary that most of us forget. All young children in Israel learned the story of God's salvation history. From the time of creation through to Moses, the dragging them through the uh, desert, their restoration, finally settling in a land, all of the fights that they had with the nations around them, and this constant pull of trust for God and trust in themselves. And that one day the Messiah would come who would lead them on a new path. She knew that story intimately. And here in an angelic experience, she's told by God, you are now going to participate in the development of the kingdom of God on earth in a new way. And she says, why am I so blessed, despite what is ahead of her? And then she says in, the song of, uh, in this um, Magnificat, my soul rejoices in the God of my salvation. And she does that because she knows precisely the story she's a part of and what she's going to play in God's hands along the way. Now most of you will be aware that the Catholics make a big fuss over Mary and evangelicals don't. So if you've been to Catholic churches, you'll see statues of her almost everywhere. And depending on how sentimental the church is, you just get more and more Mary, Mary, Mary. Why? Why do they get so excited about Mary? Because she said yes. Yeah. Mother of Messiah. Mother of Messiah, yeah. Kind of handy. Looks good on your CV, (laughs) because she was the greatest disciple of all. That's pretty much it. Mary is the greatest disciple because she believed before Jesus was born. She said yes to God because she knew what the story was. She was going to be a participant in it. She followed before following was a thing. She took up her cross, knowing one day that she would kneel at a cross. Later, later, later on in the scriptures it says as Jesus developed and grew Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She is the disciple at the beginning before Christ. She is there after the cross. She's there at the ascension. She's there at the resurrection and she's there at the beginning of the earliest church. She is the greatest disciple that we have. The tattoo on that guy's arm. If you google tattoos of Mary you will see thousands of them mostly in Latin America and different parts of Africa, and also in Asia, where people celebrate Mary as the disciple of Jesus. And they tattoo her on, on their bodies. She's popular, really popular. But in the evangelical world, by kicking Mary out, we lost something. We lost something of who we are and the story to which we, of which we're a part. And the idea that this woman is, in fact, not only just the mother of Jesus, but she's perhaps the most quintessential example of what it means to be a follower of Christ in the world. The Magnificent, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, is this prayer that Mary prays when she understands that she's a part of this kingdom process. Someone said to me recently, shouldn't Mary be a member of the hashtag MeToo movement? Because she was a woman who had no intention of getting pregnant, God just chooses her, overshadows her and that's the deal, no choice involved. Is that divine abuse? Well, the answer to the question is simple. Mary chose God before God chose Mary. Mary signed up an agreement of being a part of God's kingdom and she would give her life to that cause. So when the angel comes to see her and say, I've got good news for you, you've been chosen, there's not a horrified experience or response to the experience. There is a sense of already relinquished to it. This is the path that God has got me on. I signed up for this by birth and by faith. This is my path because I have already chosen God. So Mary was a signatory, if you like, to a kingdom plan. I want to leave you with this question as you think about Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord in the setting in which I find myself. Can you say that? Can I say that? My soul magnifies and glorifies in the Lord. My soul rejoices in whatever setting you find yourself. Because that's one of the preparation things that we do in Advent. Can we live in the circumstances of God's birth? Mary had to. Birth of a child, the suffering of a child, the death of a child, and a cruel one of that. Can we live, when we look at Mary... With both the pain of life and the kingdom call we've been given and divine trust simultaneously so that we are able to say my soul rejoices because I know who I am. I know the plan of God for the world in which I live and I am a part of that and I will relinquish myself to it so that my soul is able to rejoice and live with joy rather than despair. That's the question I'd like you to think about. Because when we get to Easter, you find Mary there too, sitting at the cross of her son. Someone said to me many years ago, how is it that we can know that Jesus truly was the Son of God? In Catholic theology, you just say, look at Mary. How would a mother who knew who the Father was, who bought into a lie, You saw her son grow and do the miracles he did and the teaching he did, and then see the son abused and eventually hung on a cross to die. How can you watch that and know that you can stop it just by simply declaring, he isn't the son of God, I can tell you who the father is. But instead she stood there and watched her son die believing that he would one day rise again and that God's kingdom would be fulfilled in him. And she believed that because way back at the beginning, prior to that Christmas event, that Christ Mass event, she had an experience of God's glory who promised her that she would be a part of the developing of God's kingdom and she held to that in her heart and it's transformed the world in which we find ourselves. And each of us, are called to that same journey. We're on God's kingdom plan. We're on God's time. We're in God's service. Are we able to say in the midst of all we face, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior? And if you think about that this Christmas and place yourself back in the hands of God, then we find ourselves able to experience the joy that Mary experienced, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what the future may or may not hold. And in doing so, We live daily with a sense of joy that has meaning in all we face, no matter who we are. So let's pray for a moment, shall we? Living God, we thank you for this Christmas season, mindful, that all that we go through as we lead up to it is not about the gift-giving. It's not necessarily about the gathering of families, even. For those of us who are followers of Christ, it's a reminder that you came into the world once, you will come yet again again. And that we also, as the disciples in the earliest days and the people of God in the Old Testament, prepared themselves for the coming of the Messiah, we prepare ourselves for the work of your kingdom. Help us to be people who, like Mary, relinquish ourselves to your kingdom's call, and in doing so, experience the joy that we can have every day by realising that our days are a gift from you. And as we utilise what we've been given, as we accept what comes our way, as we live as followers of Christ in it, then we are able to hold our heads high, live with a sense of peace, grace and hope, because rejoicing fills our hearts and minds. Amen.